Romans chapter 14. Let me give you the background. You know that Paul is now in his letter in the very practical application section. We've talked about that. You're probably tired of hearing me say that. But he's laid the foundation for our faith in chapters 1 to 11. In chapter 12, he started in, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is how it looks. This is the practice. Now, when we come to chapter 14 and the first section of 15, it's actually 14.1 to 15.13. going to be dealing with that in about five messages, by the way, so don't get concerned you're going to get the whole shebang today. But anyway, when we get to this section in chapter 14, Paul really gets down to the nitty-gritty of what gives most Christians trouble with each other, with God, and with their own lives. Because it has to do with that whole big arena of behaviors that come under the category of opinions as to what is right or wrong. And the problem with this is not that there is such a big category of opinionated ideas, but that we tend to fight about it that we tend to crowd each other in either judgment or arrogance or some other way that creates problems. As I was preparing this series of messages, some things are peripheral even you know, to the, to the basics of the faith. An example is, whether you believe the rapture is going to occur before the tribulation, in the middle of it, or after it, it probably is not going to make a whole lot of difference in how we get along with each other and, and how we move forward, unless you're just really kind of stuck in eschatology. Um, you can hold that opinion, and that's not that should not divide the church. But when you start talking about lifestyle issues, and liberties and not liberties. And, you know, I, I was jokingly said, I think I'm going to put on the marquee. Smoking, drinking, gambling. Here, Sunday. <laughs> Come listen to the message <laughs> on these topics. But all you have to do is get in those arenas. And, and, and they're widespread. All you have to do is get there. And it begins to create problems because of judging and treating one another with arrogance and getting in each other's way that brings division in the body of Christ. And Paul is giving us instructions in chapter 14 and on into chapter 15 that the thing that should most characterize the body of Christ is unity and preserving that unity is of paramount importance and so it is essential that we know how to deal with and live in the realm of these opinions. And as I was just preparing this, it dawned on me, I wonder how many people over the centuries have been hindered from coming to Christ. I'm talking about eternal salvation. Because the church held to attitudes and rules and requirements 
that had nothing to do with the Bible or the Gospel message, but were a, a, a contemporary form of legalism in their day and in our day that actually causes people to avoid the Christian church and perhaps hinders them from coming to Christ. These are important topics. Now let me give you the scenario in Rome at the time. I, I was in error last week. I think I said Claudius expelled the Christians from the city of Rome. It wasn't the Christians, it was the Jews that Claudius expelled from Rome. And then under Nero, they began to come back. The situation kind of relaxed a little bit. The Christians began to come back. And so um, now we have the situation that in Rome, we have many Gentile Christians who have continued to flourish and grow in the church. They have no Jewish background. They weren't raised as Jews. They don't have any idea of what that was like. But they've come to Christ, and they're continuing to grow and flourish in the house churches around Rome. And now we have the situation of Jewish believers, true followers of Christ, but raised as Jews, coming back into the city, beginning to uh, merge back into the church. And see, that was one of the luxuries we have that they didn't have. If you don't like what I say, you can go be an E-free person or a Presbyterian or, you know, Assembly of God. But in, if you were a Christian in the first century, you didn't have anywhere to go. There was only one church. And that was it. You didn't have denominations to pick from. There was only one. You had to go to that one or just not go. And so these, these Jewish believers are merging back into the church and problems are arising because the Jews, many of them, feel in their heart of hearts that even though they have trusted Christ as their Savior, they still have to obey the laws of Moses in order to, to be godly people. And the Gentiles don't have any background in the laws of Moses. Couple that with the fact that during the period of time under Claudius when the Jews were out of Rome, it's very likely that, that the whole practice of marketing, because, you know, if you're selling something to people, if, you, if you've got the kosher aisle in the grocery store and all of a sudden there aren't any more Jews, who needs the kosher aisle? And historians feel like what happened was many of the um, merchants just stopped catering to Jewish needs, stopped making foods and whatever available. So here was the problem. If you were a Jew adhering to the laws of Moses and you felt a pang in your conscience that you could not eat meat that was sacrificed to idols or that was not slaughtered properly and properly drained of the blood according to the laws of Moses, that you would be sinning against God. And you could not be sure if you went to the marketplace that the meat you purchased had not been defiled according to Moses' law. In fact, 99 times out of 100, it had been. Because they sacrificed the, the animal to the other gods before they harvested the meat for the, for the market. 
And they did the same with wine. They would pour out sort of a libation offering of the wine to other gods, the gods of the harvest and whatever, to say we're grateful for the fruit of the vine, and and then they would bring the rest of the wine to sell. And a Jewish Christian who felt convicted about the Jewish law could not be sure that they could purchase meat or wine in the marketplace that had not been defiled. So they solved the problem in a typical Jewish way. We're not going to eat any meat, and we're not going to drink any wine. That was it. They, they solved the issue. Because to do so was undoubtedly to run afoul of the law and defile themselves. Then there was the issue of the Sabbath days. And, and you know, for the Jewish person, they were allowed to walk the distance from their house to the synagogue and back to their house. That was all the walking they could do on the Sabbath. They could not fire up their stove. They could not cook. They could not do any other kind of work on the Sabbath. And so they held these convictions. Now, put yourself in the church in Rome and see the predicament. It's, it's Sunday. We're together. Somebody says, hey, why don't we all get together tonight and have potluck dinner? Now we've got a problem. The first problem is most of the Jews can't go home and come back because it's too far to walk on the Sabbath. They've got to hang out. Number two, you're going to bring meat, and they can't eat it. And you're going to bring your wine, and they can't drink it. So now you've got Christians who are coming to a potluck dinner. Some of them can't come or had to hang out all day. And they come to the dinner, and the Jews say, I, I, I can't believe that you've got meat and wine available. You know that's been sacrificed to idols. How could you dare eat or drink that stuff? And, you know, and you're the, you're the Roman Gentile, and you're saying, what kind of a nut are you? I mean, good grief. Don't you know? This has nothing. Idols aren't anything. We can eat this meat. We can drink this wine. What's the matter with you? You guys are crazy. Eh, go on, be Jews in your own house, but don't bring this stuff to the church. And so here you've got this dilemma. And they're struggling with each other. And Paul says that the attitudes that are springing up from this are causing problems in the church, causing disunity. And he's addressing the issue of unity and loving each other even though you have a difference of opinion. Now, with that background, let's read these first uh, 12 verses. You follow me as I read. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he can eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. 
He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who does not eat for the Lord, he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, therefore whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. For this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. But you... Why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. I want to just deal this morning with the implications of verse 1. And we're going to be talking about the, the, the whole implication of this passage over the next several weeks. But in verse 1, at the outset, Paul says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Several things leap out right away from verse 1. The first thing is, to whom is Paul speaking as he opens this discussion? He's speaking to the people who are strong in faith, isn't he? Because he says, except the one who is weak in faith. So he's talking to the strong ones, encouraging them to accept the weak ones who are weak in faith. And then he says, when you accept them, and by the word, the, the word, by the, by the way, the word accept here <clears throat> is the same word that has, <clears throat> that is the root of hospitality. And it means To fully embrace, to welcome into your fellowship, it implies intimacy. It doesn't just mean tolerance. It means loving acceptance, and I'm glad to receive you. I'm glad you're part of my church family. It says accept that person, but not in order to fix them. That's my paraphrase. Okay? Not in order to fix them. Not in order to pass judgment on their opinions. You say, well, where do we ever teach them? Well, I'm doing that right now. I get to do that on Sunday morning (laughs) to the whole group. And you have to go and ask God to apply it to your lives in particular. There's a place and a time for teaching and explaining the Scriptures. The Scriptures have very clear things to say about the subject. But you as an individual to another individual within the body of Christ regarding the arena of opinions, the Bible says receive that person into your intimate circle of friendship and don't do it so you can get them fixed. Do it because you love them. You really love them. Take them in. And not for the purpose of passing judgment on their opinions. We're talking in this section about that whole realm of behaviors that come under the category of opinions. So I want to say that at the outset. We're not talking about obvious problems that clearly are contrary to Scripture. In in the Corinthian church, the man who was living in a sexual relationship with his stepmother Paul said, even the pagans know better than that. Come on. 
deal with him, put him out of the church until he wakes up to his sin. There's no question here. But this passage is talking about opinions. That whole realm where there's questions. Now, the reason that Paul addresses the passage to the ones who are strong in faith is because they know who they are. And the weak in faith don't get it. Stay with me now. Most people who are weak in faith, by the definition in this chapter, think they're the strong ones. They think they're the spiritual ones. They think they are the ones who have fully understood the, the holiness of God, the laws of the gospel. They're the ones that believe the rest of us are lax and undisciplined and unspiritual, and if we would only get closer to God, we would see the truth and, and grow up and be, you know, strong, rule-keeping Christians like they are. The weak don't get it. Now, Paul's talking to them here. They're in, the, they're in the passage. But he addresses the passage to the ones who are strong in faith because they know who they are and they're the ones that are most in a position to do something about the problem. The second thing is, the strong are able to make concessions. So the first part is the weak don't know they're weak, but the strong usually know they're strong. Secondly, the strong can make concessions without it causing them spiritual harm or causing them a guilty conscience. But the weak cannot ever concede without feeling like they're sinning. You follow me? Here's the potluck dinner. Are we going to have meat or not going to have meat? Well, frankly, it doesn't hurt anybody to go one meal without meat. That's not going to hurt anybody. And the people who are strong are not going to have any trouble having vegetable stew. They're just not. They're not going to have a difficulty with that. But if you're the weak brother and you can't eat the meat and you put it on the table and then you try to entice them to eat it, they're going to offend their conscience. They're going to feel guilty before God. Because here's the conundrum. Even though what they're doing is not actually a sin, they think it's a sin. And when they do it, they think they have sinned. And now they feel guilty before God and feel like they have to confess. And they have also, in that process, felt the wedge come between them and God in terms of prayer. Their conscience condemns them. And furthermore, the devil drives another problem through that wedge to see if he can't further separate them from godliness. Think about it. Every one of you have been in this position. You have been tempted, you sinned, you knew you failed, and then you heard somewhere in the recesses of your mind, well, you've already gone this far, you might as well go here. Because that's part of the devil's game. And if a weak in faith person does something that is not sinful, but they think is sinful, 
and they violate their conscience, and now they feel guilty before God, the devil can exploit their feelings in order to get them to sin further in ways that may take them away from God or lead them into difficulty. And so Paul addresses the strong because it doesn't hurt the strong to give up something for the sake of the weak, but it does hurt the weak to make a concession. Now when I say that, I'm going to spend more time on this later on. The Scripture says, Do not destroy your brother for whom Christ died for the sake of meat. But, I, but I'm telling you, what, what is being said here is, you know, give it up in the context of causing them to stumble. You can go home and eat all the meat you want. You know, you can go where they can't see you and have all the freedom you want to have. Just don't bring them into it before their eyes are open to the truth or you will do damage to them. And finally, he addresses the strong because those of us who are strong in faith are able to pray for those who are weak and to help them mature. Once again, the weak, don't, they don't understand this message of grace, but the strong are able to intercede and pray for them. The strong can be of real help to the weak. The weak cannot help the strong very much. And so the burden of responsibility for unity in this area of opinions is placed upon those who are strong in faith. Now, before I move on from this, I want to ask you, why does Paul choose this terminology? Why does he choose the term weak in faith and strong in faith? And by the way, the word strong doesn't really occur until chapter 15. He talks about weak in faith, and then in chapter 15, verse 1, he talks about strong. And he sets up this, you know, this uh, two-column kind of thing. Here are the weak in faith, here are the strong in faith. Faith implies trust. Faith implies confidence. Faith implies believing God. So what is he saying the strong have or the weak don't have regarding faith? The strong have a lot of faith in God. The weak are lacking faith in God. They're weak in faith. Well, what is it that they're having trouble believing? That Jesus died for them? No, they believe that. They wouldn't be Christians if they didn't believe that. They believe He shed His blood on the cross. They believe He cleansed them from sin. They believe those things. They believe when they die, they're going to go to heaven. They believe those things. So it's not, that's not where they're weak. But where they're weak in faith is trusting God for what happens between their conversion and heaven. They are not sure God is up to the task in certain areas. Did you hear me? This is important stuff. Don't miss it. What is it they're afraid of? They're afraid of God's punishment if they sin. 
Don't raise your hand because I don't want to embarrass you. How many of you think if you sin, God's going to punish you for that sin? Don't raise your hand because you'd be wrong. <laughs> 1 John 4.18 There is no fear in love, for fear involves a certain dread of punishment. But he that is perfected in love does not fear. There is no fear in love. God put our punishment on Jesus on the cross. And we will never be punished for our sins. Discipline is another matter. But friends, discipline is not a negative issue. Discipline occurs in positive ways. You know, you're disciplining your child when you teach them math, their, their, their multiplication tables, just as much as you're disciplining them when you tell them not to put their finger in a light socket and back it up with a slap on the hand. Discipline is simply growing and training and developing toward maturity. It's not judgment. It's not punishment. It's development. But God does not punish Christians for sin. He punished Jesus for our sin. But the weak in faith are afraid of God's punishment. The weak in faith are afraid of spiritual failure if they don't follow the rules. Now hear me out, the weak in faith set up a system, and they have the rules, and they're afraid if they don't have those rules, they're going to spiritually fail, because they don't understand that the Holy Spirit is the one who leads them in sanctification and holiness and victory, and He is the one who empowers them to live godly in Christ Jesus. They feel like they've got to have these requirements or they're going to fail spiritually. Paul says, I know and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. He's going to bring me successfully through. He says it in this passage. And who are you to judge a man's, another man's servant to his own master? He stands or falls and stand he will, for God is able to make him stand. But... Weak in faith have trouble with that. Oh, I think God will help me out, but I gotta help him out too. I gotta I gotta follow the, these rules because if I don't, God may just give me the smackdown and I'll fail. People who are weak in faith are afraid of libertinism. What's gonna happen to that church if you take all the rules away? They're all going to go off the wire. They're going to become libertines. There will be orgies in the parking lot. You can't take away the rules. we got to have the rules. They're afraid of what other people will say about them. That's kind of a tough one, you know, because... You, <laughs> you remember Peter at Galatia? Peter went to Galatia when Paul came back. I mean, Antioch. They're up there in Antioch, you know. They're kind of having a mission conference. And Peter's there and Paul's there and they're coming back from all over Rome and they're having ham and pork chops and bacon and 
sausage for breakfast. And then all of a sudden, the delegation from Jerusalem arises, and Peter, <laughs> Peter goes over there to eat kosher with them. And, and he's no longer sitting at the table with the Gentiles having a pork chop. And Paul exposes him. I, I just would love to have been there. I mean, Paul, had, he says, Peter, <laughs> what? you've been eating ham all week. What's your problem? Oh, don't tell him that, Paul. I've got to go back and live in Jerusalem. Peter, you're compromising the gospel. You know, we get afraid of what other people are going to say, and then we get into this bind between the twixt and between. And we're convinced that holiness, the weak in faith are convinced that holiness is their problem. Doesn't the Bible say, be ye holy, for I am holy, says the Lord? I've got I to gotta work hard at this. And, and if, if you think that, you, miss, you missed everything I said about Romans 1 through 11. I'm not going to re-preach it. The, it's available on CD. Go back and listen. Because you cannot make yourself holy. That's God's job. But the weak in faith feel like they've got to help. So, dealing with this arena of opinions is the responsibility of the strong because they're the only ones free enough to handle it. Secondly, we cannot fill the role of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on their opinions. We cannot fill the role of the Holy Spirit in one another's lives. The reason is because we do not know what God is doing in another person's life, and if we take on the responsibility of getting them fixed, we are likely to make a bigger mess than when we started. Someone will say, I'm having trouble even in my own life. I've got this sin that I can't seem to get over. I'm struggling with this sin problem. And I keep going to God. And, and God's not, not fixing it for me. What do you mean I can trust Him to sanctify me? He's not doing a very good job. I, I lose my temper at least five times a week. And I've been praying about it for months. I've been praying about it for years. And I still lose my temper. I don't know how to solve this. And God's not helping me. What's the answer to that? Well, in that case, the answer is perhaps God has other things in your life that He needs to get at before He can get at that. This may come as a real shock to you, but did you know that God is not overly concerned about your sin? He was concerned enough for Jesus to go to the cross to pay for it. But now that it's paid for, that's a done deal. God is interested now in you growing in Christ-likeness, and He alone knows how He made you and how you're constructed and where your problems lie, and He is the one who knows how to fix you and sanctify you and make you holy. And maybe your temper is not the first thing on His agenda Maybe there's something else he's got to work on first. So you can't even determine in your own life how to be sanctified, much less take it on in somebody else's life. 
you can't go to somebody else and say, you know what, I, I think I think your skirts are too short. You know what, your hair is too long. You know what, you need to stop smoking. You know what, you need to mind your own business. You cannot be the Holy Spirit to somebody else. You can't do that because you have no idea what God is doing in their life. You might go to some young person that you think you're going to kind of tweak into sanctification and you may so deeply wound them that they leave and never come back to the church. And guess what? That's on your head. I'm not talking about the guy sleeping with his stepmother. I'm talking about opinions. We can't be the Holy Spirit for each other. We can't fix that. It's the role of the Holy Spirit to make me holy. And it's the role of the Holy Spirit to make you holy. I want to give you a secret on how to fix each other in a way that you will never do harm. Okay? You ready? It's not hard to remember. You don't have to make a big note here. Pray for them. Pray for them. Because one of two things will happen. Well, one of several things may happen. One is, if you're the one that's tweaked out of whack, and you're just looking through your own lens, then at least you're not going to afflict them with your legalism. Praise God for that. If you just talk to God about it, you're never going to afflict them with your legalism. That's a good thing. Secondly, if they really do need to be fixed and you're asking God to deal with them, I only know of one person on, on the, in the universe that can get inside the human heart, bring conviction of sin, illumination of righteousness, and give the power to change all in the same, same fell swoop. And that's the Holy Spirit of God. And if you want to see someone else changed, ask God to change them. He can do that. And if you believe in, in the power of intercessory prayer, you go to God and you pray for them. Because you won't mess them up, and He will fix them as He sees fit. And the, other, the third thing is you're going to be praying for one another, and there just can't be anything better than that. You'll be praying for each other. And God will be free to work in amazing ways. But you and I need to be very careful about trying to step into each other's life and fix each other in these areas. We're not the Holy Spirit. We're on level ground as brothers and sisters. This is a message to the strong in faith and to the weak in faith. You are all saved by grace. You all have the same master. We're brothers and sisters in the same family. No one here is intrinsically better or worse than anyone else here. We're all in the same field. And so, you know, I, I can't go to God or, or go to my brother or my sister and say, uh, you ought to do this or that or the other because I know better than you. You've got to leave it in the Master's hands. You've got to leave it with the Father. These are your brothers and sisters. God will deal with them as His own in due time. 
I've been talking all around this now, but I want to come to this final statement. But not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. We're talking about the realm of opinions. There are fundamental absolutes in the Scripture. They are there. You can find them. And if you read the Ten Commandments, some of those commandments have absolutes included in them. And whenever the law is quoted in the New Testament, very frequently it goes back to the Ten Commandments. There are other things in Scripture that you can read that are absolutes. If you want to have an elder, have an elder who is not noted for being a striker or pugnacious. What does that mean? Don't pick an elder that's, that's given to being argumentative, uh, getting into fist fights, um, having big arguments, and, and you know just being that kind of belligerent, uh, hard-headed kind of person that's picking a fight all the time. Don't pick that kind of an elder. Okay, there's something you can see in behavior. You can look at that and tell if a person is like that or not. And you can just look at them and say, okay, I don't think that person should be an elder because every time I look at them, they're picking a fight with somebody. They're in an argument about something. They're, they're, you know, they're ready to grapple. All right, they don't need to be an elder. There are absolutes in Scripture that we can look at. But in the New Testament sense, these absolutes even are things that the Holy Spirit reproduces in our life that are consistent with the character of God. And when they're absolutes, we're given permission to evaluate them. And when I said you can't judge your brother, but if you catch your brother in an outright lie, you are free in Christ to say, Brother, why did you lie to me? You know, you're not making a false accusation here about some opinionated area, you knew the facts and they told you a falsehood. Why did you lie to me? And you can challenge them. It's okay. So there are absolutes. We also need to recognize that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been freed from the law. Now, this is an important concept also that, that as 20th century, 21st century evangelical Christians we have trouble with because we have done something to the law that a Jew would never have done. We have divided it into three parts. No Jew would ever have divided the law. They saw the law as a seamless whole from Genesis 1 to the end of Deuteronomy, if you please. They saw the law as a seamless unit. Whether or not they stole something or lied about something was just as bad as what they did with a chicken when they prepared it for food. As far as they were concerned, the law was the law was the law. We have divided the law into ceremonial law, dietary and custom laws, and moral law. 
but a Jew did not see those divisions. Why is that important? Because when the Bible tells us we have been freed from the law, it means we have been freed from the law, the whole thing. The law does not apply to a Christian as a means of obtaining righteousness. It is the Holy Spirit of God working in us who produces holiness. We can see the character of God written in the law, but we must rely on the Holy Spirit to reproduce it. And there are certain elements that we know clearly have been negated by Calvary. God came to Peter in a vision in the book of Acts and lowered a sheet down to him that had all of those unclean things in it. And said to him, Peter, rise and eat. Peter said, I can't do that. He had the vision again. Peter, rise and eat. I can't do that. I'm a Jew. God, I've never had anything like that cross my lips. Third time, Peter, rise and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, no. And about that time, a knock comes on the door. And a messenger from Cornelius' house has an invitation. Come to the household of Cornelius and tell us about Jesus. And Peter goes to a Gentile's home that is full of unclean stuff. And he eats with them. And he preaches to them. And he shares with them the message of Christ and they're saved. And clearly in that passage, God negated all the Jewish dietary regulations. All of the ceremonial law was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. All those rules and regulations about the temple pointed to Jesus Christ and to my body as his dwelling place. And now that I am a post-Calvary Christian, after the cross, I am the temple of God. And all of that Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus and in me by him. And when he comes to live in me, guess where the Ten Commandments were kept in the temple? This is cool. I just thought of that. I don't know why I thought of it, but this is cool. I love it when God does. They were in the ark, in the Holy of Holies. Guess where they're kept in us? By Jesus, in the Holy of Holies, in here. We are the temple of God, and He brings His character into our lives. We have been freed from the law in every respect, that it might be reproduced in us in living reality by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we need to keep that straight. There are absolutes in Scripture, but even the absolutes are fulfilled in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not by law-keeping, but by Spirit-living. Which brings us to the third point. Something is an opinion if there is no clear verse of Scripture properly understood in context regarding a matter. If there is no clear verse of Scripture properly understood in context regarding the matter, then we're free in Jesus Christ to choose any course of action or no course of action at all as we are led by the Spirit of God. What does that mean? One of the tests that we have to to apply to the area of opinions is we have to ask ourselves the question, 
is, do you want to know if something is absolutely a sin or not? First of all, see if you can find it in the Scripture. In a passage that is properly interpreted in the context, in a way that you fully understand without question. And then when you think you're right, go one step further and ask yourself this question, is this true of all people in all times, in all cultures, across the board, if it's sin, it is always wrong everywhere in the world at any time in the world. If it is not a sin, then you may find other cultures who embrace a thing freely with no problem. Luther, during the Reformation. For those of us that grew up teetotalers, I was a Southern Baptist when I grew up, and we were taught that you never, never did anything sinful like touching alcohol. But Luther, in the Reformation, hammered out a great deal of his theology with his buddies in the local pubs. And he wasn't drinking water. He was a German. And he was drinking beer by the steins full. No problem. I remember reading the biography of Charles Haddon Spurgeon that was written by a graduate of Moody Bible Institute. And I was amused when I came to the chapter on Charles Spurgeon, and, and he says, there's something I have to, as a biographer, I have to report with integrity, but I, I'm a little embarrassed to even bring it up. Poor Mr. Spurgeon lived in a time perhaps different from ours where he didn't have full understanding. And um, I, I have no excuse for his behavior other than to say, and I report this with some trepidation, I'm paraphrasing, but this was the gist of his, of his uh, he says, on Sunday nights after preaching, Mr. Spurgeon had the habit of going back to his study and pouring himself a glass of brandy and lighting up a cigar and opening his Bible and relaxing with a brandy and a cigar and his Bible and just kind of spending time with God. And I don't know how Mr. Spurgeon could have, could have had the brandy and the cigar. Come on, people. Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers of his day. I'm not saying preachers can't have blind spots, but Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers of his day, one of the greatest expositors of Scripture, a man who loved the Lord with all of his heart, and he had this practice his entire lifetime. It wasn't like there was some time in his life when he got spiritual and quit. He practices his whole life. How did he do that? I'm confident that the Holy Spirit of God never said to him, Charles, don't you know it's a sin to drink brandy and smoke cigars? I believe if God had ever said that to Charles Spurgeon, he would have stopped. But he never heard that voice. Because there's nothing in the Scripture rightly understood in context that says it's wrong. For one thing, you can't even find tobacco in the Bible. 
You can't find me the verse that says it's wrong to smoke. Anything, well, maybe not anything, but some things that go up in smoke are illegal, even if they're not immoral necessarily. But you can't find a verse of Scripture that says you can't have a cigar. Because there isn't one. That clearly is in the realm of opinion. And as I said in the 8 o'clock service, you know, some people say, ah, but I have the answer to that, Brother Paul. The Bible says your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. You need to take care of it. Well, number one, that's in the context of sexual immorality. But once we get out of the context, I've heard more fat preachers dis-smoking and quote that verse. And it's like, hello, did you dress in front of the mirror this morning? What about your temple? You're putting too much gravy and mashed potatoes into it. You're destroying your temple with food. Gluttony is the Christian sin. <laughs> That's the one we can all get away with. Because how do you how do you know what food to rule illegal? Is it the apple pie? You know, you can't go there. But that's the wrong use of that verse. The realm of opinions is the realm of the Bible doesn't talk about this. Or the Bible talks about it in a way that is clearly obviated by the coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about this in a way that points to Him as the summation. I am the temple. He's living in me. His Spirit is in me. The dietary laws have been removed. I am free in Jesus Christ in every arena to live under the control and guidance of the Holy Spirit. We need to be careful that we do not judge each other or condemn each other. And here's the problem in the church, friends. You think you know what's right. And so someone else has a freedom that you don't have. And you say, they're sinning. How can they do that? If they would only grow up in Jesus, they would not do that. And you judge them. And it brings division because now there's tension between you. Or... You don't have freedom in some area. You can't go there. And you find your brother or sister who does. And you say, I can't believe they could do that. I can't believe they could, they could get... God's going to deal with them. I can't go there. I can't believe that they could act like that. Or you're the strong person and you have an arrogant attitude. <laughs> Stupid legalist. I, I know better than that. I don't know why they can't get with the problem. I'm not going to restrict my, my behavior on behalf of them. I, they have to deal with that themselves. I can do whatever I want whenever I want to. Paul says those attitudes hurt the church. They hurt the church. The strong need to recognize 
and we'll get to this later in more detail, don't put a stumbling block in your brother and sister's way. Don't deliberately do what you know is going to offend somebody. Pray for them. Ask God to open their understanding. And if you're on the side of the equation that says, I can't do that, and furthermore, I don't think anybody else should either, check your heart. Check your heart. Are you really saying inside that you are spiritual and they're not? Be careful about that. Pride comes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Be careful about that attitude. It may get you into a lot of hot water and real sin in your own life. We have no right to judge. To his own master, he stands or falls. Well, in the coming weeks, we're going to get into this in more depth, but I wanted to give you the overview this morning of how Paul addresses this and encourage you. Receive the one who is weak in faith, not for the purpose of fixing them, passing judgment on their opinions, but genuinely embracing them that together we might serve Jesus Christ. And in due season, by God's grace, He'll grow all of us up. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. Open our minds to receive it, our hearts to believe it. Enable us to put it into practice by faith as we depend upon the Holy Spirit to lead us in godliness and holiness in Christ Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.